When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Guru, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to have on Seth Partnow, who is a very talented writer and basketball thinker who writes for the Nylon Calculus, Harwood Paroxysm, Fancy Stats, which is Washington Post, and BWAL Breakdown, to talk about the deadline and a lot of other broad topics. And so we start out, it was recorded on Sunday, so it was after the Chris Bosch news, so we talk a little bit about that and how it affects, but then we go on to after the deadline onto a lot of other NBA topics and including some of the really strong pieces he's written recently in terms of rim defense and how point guards work and then we talk a lot about how the playoffs might happen and things like that. A lot of fun talking with him. Ran a little over an hour five. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. So I feel the place to start, even though it's a couple days past, is the trade deadline and let's start positive. What teams do you think did the best at the deadline? Um, I I liked uh, what Portland did. I liked what Oklahoma City did. Beyond that, it's it's sort of up and down. I'm not wild about you know this this frame of discussion, but from an asset standpoint, you have to say the Celtics did well. Everyone else is kind of um, in the middle. I think Philly did some some good things, and um, maybe one trade that was less good. Though I think that that I, I mean, if we want to start there first, I mean, I think every, like the the part that people seem most mad about is KJ McDaniels, right? Yeah, I'd definitely say that's true. Um, and, and, you know, to the extent that that trade was a mistake or didn't get proper value, I mean, it's that's it's just the, the resolution of a mistake that happened in the offseason, I think. I think, you know, all season is kind of something that has been sort of 
bubbling under is that uh, they offered KJ McDaniels that that I, that silly like two plus two team option deal that Philly uh, and Houston tend to offer to kind of second round uh, rookie free agent type players and KJ McDaniels knowing that he was for all intents and purposes a first rounder because people were shocked that he didn't go in the first round and kind of made fun of some teams like I don't know the Clippers for not drafting him in the first round. He kind of rightly said, you know, I'm a first rounder, so no, I'm going to bet on myself. And, you know, as a general rule, those those contracts make sense for, you know, a team taking a flyer on players. The thing is, is, is like I said, a, a, a McDaniels is not necessarily of the same profile of, you know, a Robert Covington or, or, or something like that. And while he you know, there's maybe some value in 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 a GM like Hanky saying that's how we do it, so that you know the next next year, you know the the players aren't saying, well, last year your second rounder got this, why can't I? I can see that, but at the same time, maybe doing that one size fits all thing is really where McDaniel's value as a quote asset took a little bit of a hit for him. Well, and I I don't know the whole nuances of the situation, but I'm guessing that there was also some part of the concept of leverage there that it was a I'm sure he thought about it. He's an incredibly smart guy, but I'm guessing that it was a game of chicken that they never really thought that players and agents were really playing and McDaniel's did that and he, I think it was a really smart move because the worst case scenario wasn't that much worse than that contract for a guy with his skill set. I agree with you yeah. that for you know, if you're the 55th pick and all the teams have passed on you twice and that kind of circumstance, then yeah, you, you can do that. But he, McDaniels was highly thought of and he was very talented. And as crazy as it sounds, the Sixers were a perfect situation for him to go to to cash out because he was going to get lots of playing time and his stats were going to look good. So it made, in some ways, the specific situation actually made things, made that risk more palatable for KJ. Sure. And, and, you know, we're talking about the game of, and I mean, that's, I think that, you know, knowing how good he's looked this year and, and especially in kind of, um, kind of the highlight play and, you know, defensive box score number type stuff like blocks and steals and stuff like that. He's probably going to get paid more money, but I think probably more importantly from the standpoint of the Sixers, more years than they were really comfortable doing. And and so that's why if they were either going to lose him for basically nothing this offseason by not matching an offer sheet, then getting a, a, a guy who I think can play. I mean, the, uh, Isaiah Cannon's a guy who's, who's kind of been reasonably well thought of, I think, and and another pick. I mean, it's not it's better than nothing. I'll say that. And, you know, the fact that they had to trade him for so little gets back to the, the initial contract situation rather than, you know, some decision to blow it up now for Philly. You and I are both nerds on this kind of point, but I think that I agree with you that that was the logic, but I also think that this was the year to possibly take that longer year deal if you're a team because what it looks like is going to happen now after the players rejected smoothing is that the cap is going to explode. And I think that almost everybody, there could be some exceptions, and incidentally, Reggie Jackson might be one of them, but almost everybody I think that signs this summer is going to end up being a positive with where the cap is going. Do you agree with that? Maybe, but at the same time, if you're Philly and you're you're probably thinking at about the you know the 2017 offseason probably because that's you know Sarge is is maybe coming over then and you know you're, you've you've kind of gotten Embiid and Noel and and everyone else kind of starting to hit their prime and that's when you're if you buy that it's a that it's a 
that it's an actual plan rather than a kind of a perpetual hamster wheel. Uh, then that's and and then you know maybe not having a guy who you know on a good team is probably like you know a first wing off the bench type and and not having him signed for you know six seven million maybe even ten if someone you know throws like a poison pill type deal at him uh for that season um you know you know i can i can certainly see the logic of not necessarily wanting to burden yourself with that when you don't have to yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm guessing you were more positive on the Michael Carter Williams trade than the KJ McDaniels one. Well, I mean, two first of all, from a you know a straight value standpoint, I'm intrigued by Michael Carter Williams. He's got a he's got an interesting you know range of skills and potential, but he's at he has not shown despite winning Rookie of the Year last year, he hasn't been a good NBA player at all yet. And that's not to say that it won't be, but if you are asking me straight up, would I rather have the number seven pick in this year's draft from the number four pick in next year's draft or Michael Carter-Williams, uh, that's an easy call, regardless of what else. Like, in most trade situations, I, you know, it, it, well, it depends. What else do I have? I can't think of a situation in the league where I would not rather have that draft pick than Michael Carter-Williams. So that's, and that's one thing. And the other thing is, I mean, you know, we, Talk about uh, Philly being as close to, you know, from a blank slate as possible. You know, we're one of the things we're learning is very important to, you know, good NBA offense right now is spacing and ability to shoot. And so if you're if you're designing a team literally from scratch, why would you lock yourself into a point guard who can't do that? Or at least he has to has to show that he can develop that. You know, they with as many good point guards as there are in the league now, you know, in next off season or the year after when they're ready to again, hit the gas, they have the, the ability to go get one of those point guards who's already fully formed rather than, you know, hope that, that uh, Carter Williams develops, you know, into a jump shooter and cuts down his turnovers and so on and so forth. So at that deal made complete sense to me. And, you know, it's not, it's no secret. They've been trying to move him since the summer, right? Yeah. And, I remember when I was thinking at the draft when there was that possibility that they had drafted Alfred Payton before it, they ransomed him out to Orlando that, like, oh, yeah, this is a great time to trade Michael Carter-Williams. But the return they got now with that Lakers pick, I don't think they're going to get it this year. There's a possibility, but I don't think so. But where I expect it to be next year, I would substantially prefer that to Michael Carter-Williams for the reasons you mentioned and just because I don't see a very clear path for him to get into the top half of point guards. You know, that he could maybe maybe get to the 15 to 20 range, which is valuable, but the top half is where you really start to get into the concept of surplus value. And if to me, if a guy is unlikely to reach that level, I'm not particularly willing to give up much to get him. That and also the way in which I, I to get back to it, like, you know, um, compare him with like, say Brandon Knight and, you know, at least Brandon Knight. Okay. He can shoot. So he's, he's not, going to be you know that's not an active detriment to to building a a quality i mean there's other things about brandon knight that 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 aren't perfect but it's not like well we have to we have to build around this 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 known flaw now whereas you know carter williams shooting or lack thereof is kind of why why would you build a flaw in 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 if you're if you're starting from from you know the ground up you brought up Brandon Knight. I think this is an interesting point. Uh, Nate Duncan and I talked about this. Knowing what we know about their current contracts and their potential future contracts, would you rather be sitting on Brandon Knight's rights right now or Isaiah Thomas's? Isaiah Thomas? Brandon Knight is going to get paid more 
this coming off season than Isaiah Thomas is, is going forward. And it's entirely possible that Isaiah Thomas is a superior basketball player. Um, yeah, I think with, that's a good know, way of putting it. Though there's, I mean, I think we've all kind of heard, you know, rumblings that, that teammates don't love Isaiah Thomas. So you can't discount that, obviously. But, you know, and, and by all accounts, I mean, uh, Brandon Knight is a, is a, is a you know, a, uh, the other end of that spectrum. So who knows? Yep, I agree with all that. So Miami has changed a lot in the last couple of days. How, yeah. did you, how did you think about what they did before? I mean, I think it's most fair to evaluate it before the sad news with Chris Bosh and best wishes, of course, about him and his family. And how do you feel? How does what happened there changed how you feel about it? Um, well, first, I think it was it was too much to give up for Dragic on an expiring especially this is something you kind of a lot of a lot of a lot of kind of the stuff that the nba talks about is is in terms of changing rules is to you know protect teams from themselves and and it's funny allowing uh the the heat to and a friend of mine uh made this point to me uh that allowing the heat to trade a uh, an unprotected first round pick six years out when they're you know the guy running the organization is. I, I, I don't know exactly how old Pat Riley is now, but he's pretty unlikely to be still be running the organization in, in 2021. So it's a, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, talk about uh, a move that involves differing, you know, time horizons and and uh, incentive structures. It's it's an asset that has n- virtually no value to Riley, and in three years might be very valuable to the Heat. And so that's that's one thing. And just, you know, two first-rounders in general for a guy who's a very good player, but also an expiring contract, going to get a big contract this summer. Adding him maybe impacts their ability to get something out with Hassan Whiteside if, you know, what what he's doing so far is turns out to be real or continues to be real. So at the same time, it, it before the box news, um, they were suddenly a very scary, kind of dangerous lower seed in the East, assuming health. Unfortunately, it took a about a day for that assumption to get blown out the window. On the Hassan Whiteside point, how, how do you process this? It, does it seem like it's real to you? He's played ridiculously well. I, I my skepticism is is wearing down, but I just it's it is completely unprecedented. In large part because you know if you're you know six eleven and, and athletic and can walk and chew gum, you stay in the league forever. And so the fact that he was out of the league indicated that collective wisdom of the league was there was you know something something wrong with him and you know it's i don't think it's any secret that you know there were attitude concerns to put it mildly um and whether those have been have been fixed or not or you know mitigated or his his skills have improved to the point where you live with it who knows at at the same time it's not like we haven't seen guys with those kind of issues you know put on a good good face for you know uh, or a good front, I guess, for for a couple months, uh, get a get a big contract, and then things go the other way. I mean, I think there was the not comparable, really, but I mean, you know, J.R. Smith, his his uh, six men of the year season was was uh, up until the point where he elbowed Jason Terry was you know did everything you could ask of him, and and then last year not so much. Yeah, and. With Whiteside, I think you're right that the possibility or likelihood or inevitability of the personality issues actually makes it a little bit less surprising because the reason that he was out wasn't his talent, his physical talent. 
and it was the combination of everything. But where he is right now is ridiculous. I mean, the rim protection index that you yeah. do is amazing, and I really enjoy it. And but right now he's second. Like he's second yeah. in point save for thirty for thirty six minutes. That's crazy. Yeah. Second, that not is, he, above second. Bogut, above Hibbert, above Larry Sanders, above everyone. Serge. He um he hadn't he hadn't as as of uh, the All Star break he hadn't quite played enough minutes yet. But but our, our mutual friend Kevin Farragut has kind of a, a box score plus minus estimator. And if he I'd set the I'd set uh, you know the cutoff at five hundred minutes. If he was if he had played five hundred minutes for the Heat prior to the All Star break, he would be leading the league. And that's, you know, that's, that's, again, it's, it's one of those things that's like PER. It's a, it's a, um, you know, a catch-all stat that has problems both ways and, and can, can overrate some things and underrate others, but still like high, like better than Anthony Davis on uh, who is, who's, who's, you know, leading the league on that metric, which is, he's, I don't, he's not better than Anthony Davis, but the fact that, that he's putting up numbers that allow that comparison to be said you know even if it's just to say he's not actually comparable but we have to say that is absurd yeah it really is and that he's combining that defense which you can see the defense when you watch the heat with offense that is substantially above board above some of those players that are you know you think of them as the rim protector only guys he's doing a pretty good job offensively too i I mean i think some of that is as maybe he gets scouted or the heat get if the heat continues uh, are you know a, a team that that is a team that that is prepared for then that might start to get taken away a little bit because he's he's limited offensively in that you know he doesn't he does, doesn't have the best hands doesn't have the best touch you know that he's not terrible at these things but you know if you can if you can keep him from rolling to the hoop and dunking and and keep him off the offensive boards you've you know done most of the the work in terms of stopping his scoring now, sometimes it's easier said than done, but it's not a his offensive game isn't isn't complicated. I'll say, which is you know, in, in many extents a, a good thing. I mean, I think that uh, that's that, that kind of the detriment of of many a big man is deciding. Well, I I, I want to be a you know a post up beast when unless you're really good at it, that's that's not so much how the NBA is played these days. What about somebody, let's say like Blake Griffin, who I think he's shooting way too many mid-range shots. Do you agree with that? I agreed with that, that he, but at the same time, I don't know how much of that is Griffin himself and how much is kind of other stuff going on partially with, with him physically, but even before the, the staff infection thing, but also just how their team was kind of the spacing their team was creating was, was such that maybe he wasn't able to get to the rim as much and, and kind of was forced a little bit farther out on, on, on the perimeter. Yeah, that's, that's definitely fair. Uh, going back to the rim protection two of the guys that are higher up on the list than I would expect that I'm intrigued by are one of my favorite draft prospects, Nurkic, Yusuf Nurkic and Tyler Zeller. Are, am, do those seem like aberrations? I mean, obviously they're separate cases; they're not the same guy. But how how do you feel about the repet the repetition of that? It's it's surprising. I wouldn't I wouldn't. Uh, it's this kind of thing that I wouldn't you know stake my life on or anything like that. Uh, especially because they're both kind of on the low lower end of the minutes. I don't know Nurkic especially. Um, I can like he doesn't look super athletic because he's enormous, but he's a he's very large and being very large and in the way is is you know a pretty good first step to you know protecting the rim even if you're not necessarily blocking a ton of shots though he you know he does block some shots too so and and it's uh you know shot blocking protection are 
kind of adjacent, but not the same thing always. So I wouldn't be surprised. Um, Zeller is more surprising to me, and I wonder how much of that is sort of an, an artifact of not being Jared Sullinger, <laughs> um, um, just in terms of the way the, the way the metric is is constructed. But there, you know, it's it's especially on guys with with lower minutes. It's it's messy. It, it he could be playing could be playing against guys who are poor finishers more often than not, and and so forth. So I don't. Uh, it's interesting and intriguing, but I'm not. I, I I wouldn't say that I'm I'm sold on on either of those guys yet as you know dominant rim protectors. I think um, last year uh, Gorgi Jang showed up really well on that stat and kind of a similar low minute role and he's been far worse this year though I think that some of that is also that Timberwolves being just such a train wreck in transition defense um, yeah. the, the the way that metric is calculated giving up layups and transition is going to make it's going to make players look somewhere between moderately and substantially worse than they might otherwise be just because of of you know that's giving up more attempts at the rim that the big man isn't there to contest because he's you know at the end of the end of the court yeah that's a great point um one guy who's right now the top in it who i'm a gigantic homer on is rudy Gobert. i'm so happy that we're gonna get to see him play starter minutes because as you said that changes who he's playing against but will also give us a, a much larger sample size to see whether this is for real um, I have no problem thinking that that uh, it, that that it's it, it's for real with him. I, I mean, you just you you watch the games and and the, the the eye test fully matches the metric there, just in terms of of a guy who seems to carry like a, a I don't know, I'm gonna like a nerdy D and D term or something, but like a uh, you know a, a sphere of invulnerability around him or something, just because his arms are so long that he. Uh, that and and he's you know moves pretty well that you know there's the area in which he can successfully you know impact he can project his the power of his of his defense is uh is is substantial yeah so, it's kind of like a catch radius in football in a way yeah very very much so yeah um and you know the one thing you do worry about is with the the bigger minute load is uh, fouling issues if that becomes mm-hmm. a bigger thing, and that's and that's something that the that the metric does not account for right now, and that's that's kind of a, a known a known thing that that isn't there. But I haven't figured out a good way to 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 incorporate that yeah. Um, yet. So, in thinking about Utah, a team that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and watching, which is hilarious considering they're not in the playoff picture. But yeah, you've written a few group Wilga pieces, but there was one recently on kind of the point guard personality. And one of the guys who has one of the lowest driving percentages is Dante Exum. He's so young. I want to attribute that to him just basically going from Aussie high school basketball to the NBA. But do you know if that's the kind of thing that could stick with him or if it'll eventually improve? You know, we've we've had the kind of data on that for two years, so I don't want to like say anything about how that might change or not change. I I think I'm I'm largely with you that he's much more in the I have no idea what I'm doing. I maybe shouldn't even be on the court right now because I don't know what I'm doing yet. He obviously has the talent to you know be on the NBA court, but in terms of of figuring out how to play, um, he's not there yet. I mean, he's he's maybe even like earlier on the learning curve than than you know Zach Levine, who you know after. Is starting to show some flashes now, but for the first half of the season was a little bit deer in headlights um, in terms of just how to how to play at this at this level. It's, again, starting to come around, but there's I think going to be some learning that goes on between you know years one and three, and so I wouldn't put 
uh, too much too much stock in 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 that as saying that he's not going to be a guy who can get to the rim at the NBA level. Are you as surprised as I am by what how Marcus Smart's offense is looking so far? I mean, I watched a lot of him Very. in college, and I would you could have blown me over with a feather if you had told me that this is what he was going to be in his in his rookie year. I'm I'm very surprised by that. And and you know people have have talked about this with people and some people said well partially that's the you know the Boston offense doesn't necessarily allow a lot of drives and stuff like that, but you know uh Rondo was driving almost more than twice as often as 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 Smart is. I mean, he's he's driving at a similar rate to like Jose Calderon and Pablo Prigioni. So that's we're, we're that's well beyond just well the offense doesn't allow for a lot of drives. That's, you know, it's very surprising. Now, how much of the, again, what if that's a role where he's being used specifically as like a spot up shooter more than a, you know, a pick and roll initiator and, and stuff like that? Whether it was because when Rondo was there, now Evan Turner is sort of playing point guard. Um, yay. You know, w- we'll see. Again, it's a, you know, we've had these, these, these kind of sport view based metrics for two years basically so it's 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 a lear- it's learning for for you know anyone using them how they might change over time and and how context sensitive they are and the addition of isaiah thomas will make that even more complicated because he yeah. is he is as ball dominant as it gets as far as i can think of yeah i mean he not so much this year but that's because there's only one ball to go around between the the, the three of them in yeah. phoenix so yeah I, I don't know why I'm so intrigued by how that's going to work, because I like all three of those guys in isolation, meaning Smart, Isaiah, and Bradley, but I'm not sure I like any two of them together. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I liked the, the I liked the idea of Smart and Bradley together just because defense, um, especially if, if Smart is is actually a, a, a competent or better NBA three-point shooter. At the same time, though, if he's not if he's not going to be a penetrator, then maybe you're not you know moving the defense around enough to create a really high powered offense there. So, yeah, it's it's some interesting interesting mix of, of of guys there. Would you, with what we have, would you rather have the combined asset package? So that means players and picks for the Celtics or for the Sixers? Uh, does this include coaches? That makes it interesting. Do you think that makes enough of a difference? To actually, I, I don't know if it does because I I, I, I like both coaches. Actually, I think that I think that 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 uh, I think it's a little bit underrated the job that that Brett Brown has has done the last couple of years in, in Philly because Absolutely. it's you know I think that's you know the fact that 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 he and Carter Williams didn't always see eye to eye on stuff that probably made that deal a little bit easier too. I think if yeah. I don't know how how plausible it would be that if that if Brown had gone to to Hinkie and said, "No, don't trade him. This is my guy. I can work with him. We can get there from here." I don't know if, how if if they're quite as as eager to trade him, but uh, but from afar, I'm not sure how sad Brett Brown was to see him go. Yeah, I, I think that that's also, as you said, is part of it. And when you're when the goal is to you know to build stars and to to build a talent in your roster the other component of that is how well you know how much you're building a foundation for the future and if they felt that michael carter williams was not a part of that foundation then you have even more pressure to move him if you get an offer that has fair or overvalued him and i think that's what they got i mean i think that they got they overvalued him i don't think we need to (laughs) i don't think we need to dance around that i think that's oh you don't want to hedge no 
What do you think the chances Sorry, are ahead. that the Lakers give up that pick this year? I think it's really low. I think it's I think it's 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 pretty low. Um, but how do you think? Well, I I was talking about this with a few people, and I don't see a reasonable path that they make the playoffs next year. Even if they got everybody they wanted within the rules of the cap, because the way signing trades work and the way lots of other things work, I just don't see it. I don't see how they can amass unless they draft the guy who becomes the unquestioned rookie of the year, and you know you get that as a foundation. I just don't see it. I mean, even unquestioned rookie of the year who is the i mean if if they drafted anthony davis 2.0 with who with whoever else they're getting um i think rookie anthony davis 2.0 struggles to get that team with you know it's a it's a it's a fun parallel actually because uh, part of it is you know with byron scott as the coach (laughs) i think that that plays into it um you know i'm i'm uh i'm not a i'm not a guy who likes to you know, go out of my way to bash coaches, but he's one of the ones I will. Um, <laughs> both because it seems like he would suck to play for, and also not being very good at the basketball part of of, of you know with his in- interesting ideas about three pointers and such. Yeah, uh, you brought up Anthony Davis, and that got me thinking that you'd be a great person to ask this to. And there, it kind of frustrates me that there isn't a true rubric on it. But how do you define, if you were a voter for Most Valuable Player, how would you define it? And then how would you see the race this year? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's somewhere between, like, best player and, you know, best player on a, uh, a, a player most contributing to a, a top contending team. Um, and, and I think that, you know, unfortunately for him, they're not going to make the playoffs. Sorry, Pelicans fans. Um, <laughs> um, so I can't give it to a guy who doesn't make the playoffs in, in, in a season as, as good and competitive as this one with so many you know, so guys putting up great performances, as good as he's been. For me, that probably makes the front runner as of right now, Steph Curry. Um, though LeBron is menacing. Russell Westbrook is, is kind of stating a case as well. Uh, Harden has 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 been there thereabouts. So I think those are the I think those are the four reasonable contenders right, right now. Yeah, I th- I think that's about right. And I when I did I did a ranking of just in terms of who had the likelihood of winning the award, and I put LeBron low. This was a little while ago, and because the logic I had Durant above him was that it was easier to attribute Durant's contribution because he was gone and they weren't as good to him coming back but what LeBron has been able to do recently is being a part of that team is remarkable and he you see him affect the game in a very different way and the other thing that I love about LeBron is that he combines a lot of different components and so you know you talk about you know how a point guard has the ball in their hands a lot and they do all this kind of stuff but then generally speaking their impact on the defense can be somewhat muted LeBron combines that skill set with a guy who impacts the game more on the defensive end than the average point guard it's certainly more than the average point guard but not um I think that that it's probably been better the last couple of weeks uh, because his, you know, ability to just be, he physically just looks, does not look like the same player he did, you know, a month and a half ago. Right. Like before he took the break. And now the difference is, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the whole runaway freight train thing is back with a vengeance. 
so and part of that means he's now you know he's shooting the gap for steals and getting out on the break and and stuff like that um but you know the lebron of 2015 is not the lebron of you know 2012 2013 uh, defensively but oh, yeah. you're but you're still right that that's still he's still more impactful defensively than you know it would be hard for most point guards to you know to you know, just by virtue of, you know, a guy who's six three one ninety versus a guy who's six eight two, whatever he is these days, depending on whether he's eating paleo or not. It's so crazy thinking about just his build and everything that the assumption is that he will eventually become a power forward. But I mean, considering the way his game has grown, he could become a power forward who's kind of a hybrid stretch four, which would be pretty fun if he could get that corner three down enough to make it so that he he kind of combines he becomes a point stretch four <laughs> a a fitter boris dial yeah a fit wow i hadn't thought about that but yeah fitter wow it's kind of i mean it's hard to imagine a fitter <laughs> boris dial except that a fitter boris dial already existed a long time yeah ago. a long time ago uh, this, that was not difficult yeah. so it's my favorite draft story ever but <laughs> <laughs> Well, and with with Boris, I mean, in some ways, to me, I remember hearing and reading because I didn't watch any, if if not much, of him playing. From what I remember, in in France or anything before he was drafted, but he's another guy. I don't know. I you thinking about him, and then we talked about us on Whiteside, another guy who I think you could always tell that the talent was there, but you, it was frustrating that it didn't come out. And then you know, it, it's had its moments now, both recently, obviously, but earlier than that as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly Phoenix Boris Diaw was 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 a pretty good Boris Diaw. I mean, yeah, the the, the year where he basically a, a an Amari imitation for for most of the season was he. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't Amari, but he was that team was still really good. Plugging Boris Diaw in for Amari Stardomar, and that, and and that says something, I think. Are you in the same boat with me that basically this we're just waiting for the Spurs to make the playoffs? But I I still think that they're. One if on the short list of the most dangerous teams in the West, even if their record doesn't show it. Man, I don't know. I mean, it's it's, it's the kind of thing where we're we're I think we're we're going to be all be gun shy to, to 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 pick against them just because you know the the obituary has been written so many times. But this year, for the first time in a while, it really seems like you know they in the past you know guys missing games never seemed to matter to them. And this year it has, and maybe that's just you know they're just kind of catching the the backside of variance a little bit where they caught you know the good side last year where it didn't seem to matter who played they were still the same team and this year it matters very much, but that's you know and and Tony Parker the same guy he, he's been up and down maybe he's getting healthier Kawhi has been kind of snake bit uh, Patty Mills hasn't been nearly as good maybe. <laughs> like you know, I think that there there's going to be a fear factor with them until someone you know kills them off. But at the same time, I don't think that there's the oh man the Spurs factor yeah. as as much. I, like I feel like you know the the oh man the team is more like the Grizzlies than the Spurs right now. Interesting. You know what? What do you think about Jaeger in terms of? I was thinking about what teams. Popovich has a substantial advantage on. Obviously, I think he's the best coach in the league, and I think he's the best coach in the playoff series in the league more particularly. But there are a few coaches. I don't think there are any, you know, like egregious ones in the West. But Jaeger and McHale are the two in my mind that I go, oh, if you gave Pop a seven-game series, I think he could find some advantages and press those. 
I don't know. Jaeger, I was really impressed with Jaeger in, in, the, in that series last year. Um, they did some 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 really neat stuff. They they uh, a lineup that I haven't seen them use too much this year that they busted out in that that Spurs series, which they played like two point guards and Tony Allen at power forward and and with with Gasol at center and basically ran a Princeton offense. And it was it was like the lineups were, were something like Udrick and 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 Conley and Courtney Lee and, and and Allen, and then every play was run through. Gasol at the elbow and they just spread the floor and Tony Allen was back cutting all over the place. And it was, and you know, they, they used it for, you know, five minutes at a time, you know, once in each half or something. And it worked, I mean, it worked really well and it was fun and innovative and, and, you know, and then they went back to, you know, Gasol and, 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 and Kufis and, and Zebo pounding away. And it was, it was a nice little, little stylistic change up. So, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't dislike Jaeger as a coach. And I think Mikhail gets somewhat of a of a of a bad rap too. Is he is he the the most you know quote unquote analytically on point? No, but he's also part part of the thing with Mikhail is if you build your team with with James Harden and Dwight Howard as your superstars, then James Harden and Dwight Howard are your superstars, and that's you know there's that that's not all sunshine and light the way Dwight Howard wants to play and the way Dwight Howard should play, especially offensively aren't really the same thing. And I think we've known this for a long time, but at the same time, you you know, as, as a coach, you have, you have a certain degree of control, but also a certain degree of things that are out of your control, especially when dealing with, you know, franchise superstar type players. That's definitely true. I think that's a fair point. And, yeah, Memphis. Memphis has played really well. I, I've been impressed with their overall talent and and everything. But at the same time, I don't know. I I well, I still have that kind of harboring thing for San Antonio and OKC. Like if they can move up a little bit, I'm just going to feel so much more comfortable with them in a seven game series than a team like the Clippers or even I don't know. I still don't have a feel for how the Mavericks are going to beat most of these really good teams in a seven game series. I, I think, I mean, I think of the teams that seem likely to, if we're going to power rank the teams that were going to make the Western conference playoffs, I think that it would be Dallas eight Clippers seven. And then from there, you could talk me into a lot of different things as long as golden state was one. I, you're talking about coaches that, you know, you get, you get in a seven game series with pop. Maybe it's, I'm letting my view of his general managing cloud the judgment, but I mean, I think that the biggest mismatch might be Pop and Doc. Yeah, um, I mean, what I think about with that is I watched the, I covered the Warriors Clippers series last year, and there were so many openings because of how set in his ways the Doc is that Mark Jackson could have taken advantage of, except that Mark Jackson is Mark Jackson <laughs> and didn't. Actually, I, I think it's really funny. The last question you I can't phrased, disrespect the caterpillar like that. The last question I asked Mark Jackson as coach of the Warriors, and I asked it in such a horribly convoluted way that he didn't really follow it, which is my own fault. But the concept was, why hasn't he switched Stephen Curry's minutes so that he's always playing when Darren Collison's on the floor? Because Curry consistently kills Collison, and Chris Paul gives him so many problems. And his basic answer was, we do what we do. And I'm kind of like, this is an advantage that you have. Use your advantage. I'm not saying I'm some sort of fastball genius. Far, far from it. But the concept of a, an opponent who has a predictable strategy always creates opportunities to maximize. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a. 
it's a broader topic than just Mark Jackson, but you, you mean be, reacting or forcing reactions and stuff like that is is always is always kind of fascinating to me, and is part of the reason why you know why we like we don't like to write off the Spurs is the fact that they have a, a almost a less set way of playing and that they can is is any they can, they can make any style of lineup seem like the, their regular game so that they're never actually adjusting they're just playing their game in a slightly different manner whereas they can always try to find a a, a combination of lineups that can you know maybe force you to adjust your game so maybe you know almost force memphis into playing not playing two bigs or something like that um and and that that always seems like it's an advantage so the line between you know exploiting something you see or reacting to something that's being done to you is a thin one and that's and it's a far broader topic than <laughs> we have time for right now but i i sort of agree with you that that seems like that's that's kind of a that's free money that has been left on the ground in that case uh, so well, well, I think I want to do with, with a lot of things. I think I want to do it with both conferences. I think it's a fun way to think about it. We'll start with West because we've been talking about the West already. What team do you think gives the most problems, or you, if you want to phrase it, has the best chance of beating the Warriors before they get to the NBA Finals? Uh, the Thunder. I think that's. I think that's right. Maybe the I mean, Spurs. I think. So I've said the Spurs for so long that I feel like yeah. I have to say it, but I'm yeah. not one of those people who's like, "Oh, I picked the NBA Finals before the season, so I have to stick with it." But yeah, no, the fun. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like the Thunder, the peak Thunder, especially with some more pieces, and I think that uh, I was, you know, I, other people have said this. I mean, it's Simmons and and Haralibus were talking about this a little bit yesterday, but I think that Singler is a sneaky good pickup for them in terms of you know he's. He's not a lockdown defender, but he's in terms of of a guy that you know to be that 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 extra perimeter guy who can both be competent on D and has to be guarded on offense. They actually kind of really haven't had that. You know, they've it's kind of been uh, very much one or the, the other. You know, like this year, if you could combine you know uh, uh, Robertson and and Morrow into one player, that would be ideal for them. But he kind of splits the difference a little bit, and and not having to choose offense or defense is is a nice little touch there. Um, and also, you know, having I've never been as his his hugest fan, but uh, I think DJ Augustine probably gives them you know better backup point guard minutes than really anyone they've had and and I kind of include Reggie Jackson in that because I mean Reggie Jackson was giving kind of backup work minutes rather than backup point guard minutes not that Russell Westbrook isn't a point guard but if you're if you're doing Russell a bad Russell Westbrook imitation then it's it's also kind of not quite playing point guard and you neglected to mention one half of the best backcourt in the league to start the season Dion Waiters uh, I was hoping we wouldn't mention him. That's <laughs> oh come on! It's fun to with, bag on let's Deion put it this Waiters. Way. With with uh, with Brandon Jennings out for the season, Deion Waiters is my least favorite active player in the league. So yeah, less less why I, I'll say this: I um I like the idea of of that move for them. I didn't like the execution. I, I think you know a, a team that whose window was now. Going after and, and using your, your your draft picks to you know uh, secure players who can who can play and help you on the court now, right now is is the way to go. I just you know wish they would have I don't know if I was them I would rather have had 
Aaron Aflalo. I mean, in a, you know, in, in a vacuum, uh, contracts aside, so on and so forth. I just think Aaron Aflalo is better at basketball, and also less of a you know. <laughs> what do you think about Canner? I, I I'm I'm not, I'm not sold on him at all anymore. I'm I'm not either, but they they have they have a um an, an incredible luxury of you know if you want to if you want to add a uh, an offense only big man to your lineup, um having Serge Ibaka as your power forward is kind of a, a nice bit of uh, insurance there. So you can you know even if he's going to you know stand there and, and shoot seventeen footers and maybe rebound a little and not play much defense, well Ibaka can clean up a lot of that. And, you know, having one more kind of place for the ball to go and, and, and good things to happen uh, doesn't hurt them. I think, you know, a large part of their offense's aesthetic ugliness over the years has been the fact that they haven't had guys who can do things with the ball in their hands. And Cantor's great at it, but he's, you know, you, you can occasionally, especially, you know, in a mismatch, if the other team goes small or something like that, you know, dumping the ball into Cantor in the post isn't isn't the worst thing possible for, for a possession, I think. So, uh, I mean, it's, and considering that they, I mean, they gave up not so much for him. So it's, I don't, I don't hate the gamble at all. Put it that way. Yeah. I don't hate the gamble either, but at the, at the same time, I don't know. I just am so not sold at the present moment about guys who are pretty much centers who can't really defend power forwards, who, who can't protect the rim. And that, line also applies to Nikola Vucevic who's such a weird guy because you know his his stats and a lot of things are really good but I don't know that you can do regularly well with a player like that as your main big man well it, it, you if you can if you have Serge Ibaka <laughs> and that's and that's I think that you know that you talk about who would be the the ideal big man to pair with you know this kind of sort of somewhat jump shooty not so much rim protecty big man who can who can score well there's the, the who do you pair them with the answer for you know every guy of in of, in, of that sort of persuasion in the league league is Serge Ibaka we already talked about you know we talked about the western conference who's the biggest threat i'm not going to let you pick the cavs but who do you think other than the cavs is the biggest threat to the hawks in the east the hawks <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I mean, the, obviously the Bulls. I think um, I'm not. I'm not sold on on the Raptors at all. I I think Washington is is is. First of all, they're they're they keep getting banged up, and you know, again, you you uh, you want to talk about a you know, a coaching deficit in a series? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not. I you know I, I don't really think much of what Toronto or Washington will do in the playoffs. Um, so that kind of by process of elimination leaves, you know, the Bulls if they get healthy, which I think is officially part of their name right now. Am I be, I know I'm going to get some hate tweets for this, but am I crazy to think that even without Bosch, Miami could beat Toronto in a seven game series? Nope. Not, uh, not, not crazy at all. God, how, um, how big of a hit would that be? Whew. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been joking. Well, not even joking. I've been serious that people have been talking about, oh, even even with the Bosch thing, obviously, but West best wishes to him, but that Miami-Cleveland would be such a fun series. And I've been saying, I think it would be so much more fun if it was a second-round series. But I do think that maybe that's less true now because now I, I see much a smaller chance yeah. that Miami could actually win the series. 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that it's entirely like it's in, in a playoff setting. If, if Miami and Toronto played Dwayne Wade could easily, with all due respect to Kyle Lowry, Dwayne Wade could easily be the best player on the floor every game of that series still. So that's, and you know, if you're picking playoff series, start with the team with the single best player. Isn't a <laughs> isn't a bad rubric to start with in terms of of making your picks. So that's 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 there. And you know, Toronto's got some some lineup issues. And you know, what what are they doing at the second wing spot? And and what what are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing at, at big man with you know Amir Johnson banged up and and them apparently not loving him and and Valanciunas coming and going and you know now chuck hayes is is getting rotation minutes for them which you know love chuck hayes but if 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 he's getting rotation minutes for you and not purely as a kind of the other team has a has a post player we need to stop kind of way that's problematic so what do you think about the chances that hassan whiteside could be the best player on the four for games in that series yeah, 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 yeah. We're we are th- we are through the looking glass. Um, we are. Yeah, embrace it. I mean, I guess. Okay, that could happen too. I don't understand what I don't understand what happened. <laughs> are, are there any? I mean, we're we're so far away, but are there any just conceptual matchups? I'm going to exclude Warriors Hawks because that just that are that already sounds fun to me. But beyond that, that you're just intrigued to think about how that would work in a seven game series. Memphis versus versus a, a lot of people, especially you know the new versatile kind of Jeff Green in in place. Uh, Grizzlies versus a lot of people could be fun. Grizzlies Warriors, I, I think, would be fun. Let me see in the East. I think that you know Cleveland Chicago will be fascinating. Cleveland Atlanta will be fascinating. I think Atlanta Washington could be interesting. I guess. Just because part of that, part of the reason that's fascinating to me is it's like John Wall playing against the less talented but more realized version of himself. You know, I like, like that. I, I I feel like like Jeff Teague's style of play would be the be- the optimal style of play. And this is something I've talked about a lot this year. Would be the optimal style of play for John Wall. And through very little fault of John Wall's own, he's not he's not playing that that style. You know. I mean, Jeff Teague is just, it relentlessly gets to the basket, and it, and the fact that John Wall doesn't is, you know, I, I think it says far less about his his capabilities than the situation in, in which he, he's being put. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I, th- I think we saw last night with, I don't know how much time you watched the Cleveland-Washington game, but I, I mean, I thought a lot of that game was the Cavs dominating, but another part of it was, I don't think Washington... They're, the way that they're coached and the way that they play works that well against teams that are as talented or more talented than them. And I was thinking about how that would work in a series against Milwaukee. Milwaukee's not nearly as good as them, but I feel like Milwaukee would have a fighting chance in that series. Well, they, I mean, they, you know, it's they and since they run similar offense, they and Minnesota kind of they 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 execute stuff really well that gets them eighteen foot jump shots. All right, the guy, the timing was good, and these guys set a screen there, and and every guy came off the screen to shoot an elbow jumper, which is fine. But if the, if if that's the perfect outcome of of your offensive set, then you've already kind of limited your upside there a little bit. And you know, and against a team that you know they maybe have an advantage on, you would maybe hope to exploit it to a better degree, bigger degree than that. And that's you know that's a, that is a frustrating thing, and I think that. Uh, 
that the deluge of mid-range jump shots have, have really started to to wear down Wizards fans. Yeah, I agree with that. I was just thinking conceptually, we talked about him being being real, not being a mirage. How many minutes a game do you think Rudy Joubert would have to play for you to consider him for Defensive Player of the Year? He'd have to play for a different team this year. But, I mean, in terms of for you thinking he deserves it, is the, is the team result a factor in that, or is it just because... Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, I, part of the reason why I, I didn't really think much of, of Vucevic as an, as an all-star candidate is um, there are, you know, guys who are good players who are doing decent things, but they're playing in games that who cares? Um, you know, it's, uh, Orlando is not, is not a team that, that is, you know, circled on anyone's, anyone's calendar neither is Utah. And I think that in terms of, of individual performance, that matters. Um, I think the, the classic example I can I can think of this is um, his rookie year uh, in New Orleans after Chris Paul got hurt. Darren Collison put up kind of ridiculous stat numbers, um, and that was partially. And I think partially that was you know Darren Collison's an okay player. Um, I've been down on him before, but he's an okay player. But part of that is also all right. Well, this is New Orleans without Chris Paul. Yeah, and you know it's not that like their record was was meaningfully better than you would have thought. It's just Darren Collison happened to be to to put up you know nice efficient numbers you know because partially because you know we're going to go in there we're going to beat them and who cares and and all wow who's that guy who went off on us he might be something but we still won so and that's a long winded way of saying that you know Gobert is, is intriguing and his rim protection is 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 fantastic and stuff like that but. He still is playing in, in in Utah for a team that's doing nothing this year. So, you know, I think that if there were if those were games that were, you know, to again go back to the cliche circle on a calendar, you'd start to see teams figuring out how to get him away from the basket a little more, how to limit his effectiveness, how to get him in foul trouble quicker, stuff like that. So, it, it he's just kind of disqualified from kind of that kind of award by where where the team is as a whole. That's a great point. I think that's an, an important way of thinking about individual dominance, and I, I think that could be a potential factor for Anthony Davis as well. I mean, some of it is also that he has great teammates, but New Orleans, they're fun and they're interesting for people, I guess, but I don't think people are circling them on the calendar either. He's a little bit different because, you know, he's Anthony freaking Davis, so... <laughs> and, 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 and I think everyone... He has enough of a profile that 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 people are are very aware that you know he if if we're not careful he's going to go for forty five and fifteen on us tonight. So um, he maybe get gets less of less ignored than 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 uh, just by virtue of I mean he has more of a of a of a kind of a profile than 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 these other guys we're talking about by several orders of magnitude. So I don't really put him in that same category, although. You know, again, the MVP thing—you you can't give MVP to a guy who doesn't make the playoffs in a sport where you know individual talent has such a such an Im- impact on on where a team finishes up. It's not baseball. Yeah. One of the pieces you wrote recently that I really enjoyed, and I wanted to kind of make sure we talked about before we stopped talking, was the <laughs> idea of defending three pointers versus preventing them. You want to kind of convey convey to listeners the idea that was behind the piece and where it led you? 
Sure. First of all, I have to give some credit to it. Uh, a guy named uh, uh, Johannes Becker, who is uh, Sports Tribution on on uh, on on Twitter, who is, is a friend of the program, if you will, who who kind of wrote the follow up article that basically proved that uh, that uh, you know three three point the distribution of three point shooting looks basically like a coin flip. You know, in that. Uh, once the ball is 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 shot, it's it it goes in or it doesn't unpredictably. I mean, around sort of. Okay, if this guy's a forty percent shooter, it's going to be head forty percent of the time, tails sixty percent of the time. But the defense, you know, other than you know how far they are away from the shot, has not much to say about whether it goes in or not. I'm I'm not describing his his research perfectly, but it's essentially that. Once the ball is shot, there's, it's it's lucky from the defensive perspective whether it went in or not. That that's the the, the hard sort of quant aspect of it. The the genesis of the idea is you know it's a it's a, a hackneyed phrase, but it's also one of my favorite sayings about the NBA is it's a make or miss league. You know you can play great defense and a guy will hit it because he's an NBA player will you know hit three threes in a row with with guys draped all over him and you lose. Or you can, the other side of it is you get wide open shot after wide open shot and no one can, you know, no one can hit the broad side of the barn and you lose. And while shot making is, you know, is, is an aspect of playing well, it's only some of, it's only a, a partial aspect of it. And, and so, you know, the shot going in or not, how basic, which to some degree is, is, is really indistinguishable from luck plays a big role in, in how, a game or even a, even a set of a few games can turn out. And so then it would follow that the real skill, let's say, in terms of three-point defense is not... I mean, yeah, it's, you could do some in terms of contesting and being close, but it's more about preventing them against most teams than about trying to stop the ones that are shot from going in. Yeah, I, I, yes. What, what I kind of saw looking at sort of 10-game samples was that the variation in three-point shooting had much more to do with quote-unquote luck than with the, the level of defensive pressure on the shots. Now, over uh, over the course of a season, yeah, if more of your opponent's three-pointers are closely guarded than wide open, they're probably going to shoot a lower percentage. But over you know a, a shorter span of time, it's largely indistinguishable, so you're better off in general not letting them get shots off at all than... than uh, than you know, relying on your ability to quote contest three pointers to 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 help there. And to me, when I was reading your piece, what I was thinking about is the concept of gravity and thinking about guys who have to grow it. Because if they're if you're a straight catch and shoot guy, can you scare them away from the shot if you're contesting it, or if you you know just kind of how how you defend all that? Because Clay Thompson, let's say, is a good example of that part of the reason the Warriors, are, to me, are so much better offensively beyond all the other reasons is that he's so much more comfortable now doing a couple dribbles and something happening with it. Because before, I mean, if, if he's a catch-and-shoot guy, it was a lot easier to take him out of a game. Yeah, no, that's that, that's certainly true. And that, But on the other hand, like, a lot of catch-and-shoot guys, it sort of doesn't matter. You know, Kyle Korver, you know, he... Sh- it's a little bit worse with with uh, with with a you know on a contested shot, but it's still if he gets the shot up, it's bad things have happened for yeah. uh, from a from a defensive perspective. Yeah, and yeah, and so 
in some ways, then you're getting you're starting to get more into the issue of ball denial than sh- is. Do you do you kind of see it that way? That in certain yeah, certain well, it's it's not just ball denial. I mean, yes, the, the it's it's tough because we don't really necessarily have a way of modeling shot deterrence. I mean, I think watching a game, you can see, oh, that's a great closeout. He's right up on him. He's not even going to try to get the shot off there. You can, but I don't think we have really any any sort of way of formally capturing that yet. And so I think, yeah, that is important. And that's, I think, part of the reason why, for example, the Hawks are, for the most part, a very good defensive team this year, is if you watch them play, like the ball, we've all seen the play where there's, you know, pick and roll on one side, the ball swings to the other, uh, there's an extra pass, and it ends up in, in the corner where a guy either shoots a three with a guy running at him or pump fakes and drives. Well, the Hawks' rotations are so good that when the guy catches the the ball in that weak side corner the Hawks defender is kind of already closed out in his stance on him so it's not they're not necessarily in that disadvantaged position and that's it's hard to model it and and hopefully I've described it well enough that that people can see it in their mind's eye but that's like really good defense and taking what's what's a uh, should be a good situation for the offense and turned it into nothing really special yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. And then kind of the flip side of that is when a defense can take away something an offense does well. And my example of that was the Clippers last year against the Warriors did an amazing job of getting the ball out of Stephen Curry's hands and then preventing him from getting the ball back because they knew that nobody else on that on that Warriors team with that coaching and staff and scheme could beat them. And so they were able to do that. And so you know that that's another component of this is how well a defense can take away what an offense wants to do. Sure. Strangely, the the Warriors with very similar personnel now, you'd say they have about four guys who who the, if if they threw them if, if you know you double Steph at you know near half court and he, he throws the ball to Thompson or to Barnes or to or to uh, Green or even a Bogut or Lee or or something like that, then all of a sudden you just feel like they're much more dangerous. Uh, having they're much more empowered to to make things happen with the ball rather than this wasn't what we designed. What do I do now? Yeah. Where, Bog- which Bogut as an offensive player is such a, it's not a revelation because he was this when he was at Utah and he was this when he was in Milwaukee, but it's, it's been so refreshing for me as somebody who's been around him now for recent years and who's followed his whole career to remind her, Oh yeah, he's really good at this. Yeah, no, that's, that's, you know, the, the big reason why you thought that, you know, like, they, the Warriors might take a step forward this year is if you, and this is something I, I wrote about before the year, is the Warriors threw the fewest passes in the league last year. And you look at the players they have on their team, and you know last year with Lee starting, and it turns out this year with Green starting, uh, four of their five starters were excellent passers. You know, they, it, it, especially their big guys. And they just weren't using that, that bit of talent at all. Um, and it wasn't just like the number of passes; it was you know meaningful passes. And last year they were below average, and the, the potential assists they were generating a game. And this year they're the best in the league, and it, you it kind of shows up on on the court. The ball moves, guys get the get the ball in advantageous spots, and you know Harrison Barnes, you know attacking a guy in good situation in a in you know good position one on one is one thing. Harrison Barnes attacking a guy sprinting out at him. All of a sudden, you know, he can do some things there because he's been placed in a more advantageous situation. And just, you know, taking advantage of that that that's that skill on their team, which is, you know, Bogut is a great passer for a big man. David Lee is a great passer for a big man. Draymond Green, to the extent that on offense he can be considered a big man. He's I mean, he 
he kind of plays like a third wing on offense much more than a, than a, than a big man, but he's a really good passer. Iguodala is a really good passer. Um, Clay Thompson, who wasn't, he, he has become a, a, at the very least a solid passer. And this is just a huge, you know, upgrade in, in their ability to generate good shots, not just from, you know, Stephen Curry's individual brilliance. Do you see, like, I see the potential for really positive, to use an economic term, spillover effects of these teams like the Warriors and Hawks doing really well and teams even emulating that and seeking out those qualities in players? You know, they're, they're not going to, maybe, I mean, to the extent that that makes a guy like, I don't know, like a Kyle Anderson who hasn't necessarily done much this season, but it makes someone with his skills more valued coming into the league. You know, that's maybe at the margins, but um, their success isn't going to create more guys who can, you know, pass the ball. Uh, the, the Hawks thing works because, you know, again, when in Horford and Millsap, you have uh, two mobile big guys who can do things with the ball. Their offense doesn't work if you replace them with Stephen Adams and Serge Ibaka. You know, we're both, you know, good players, but different skills. That's like how um, the Shaq and Kobe Lakers didn't create copycats because you needed Shaq and Kobe. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, that um, to the extent that it's a model, yes, you'd like your team that way. And that's part of why, you know, the, the whole Kings firing Mike Malone thing because they wanted to play like the Warriors. Look at the players you have. You can't play that way. You're nowhere close to having those players. And that's why that was it was it was ridiculous to, to you know, even expect that. You're saying that giving a substantial contract to Darren Collison and making him a starting point guard is not a, a guarantee that you're going to have a quality passing team? <laughs> uh, well, that's part of it. But also, I mean, you know, if if you're relying on Rudy Gay and Der- and, and uh, DeMarcus Cousins as, as big parts of your offense, ball movement is not necessarily going to be your is, – is not going to be your strength. And that's, you know, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, get Boogie the ball and get out of the way, it's, you know – that, that's that's okay, isn't it? Yeah. Especially from what we saw last night, you can just give him the ball at half court and get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Get it, get out of the ball, and tell people to get out of the way, or else he'll get you out of the way. So, sorry, Jay. I love um. Demarcus Cousins. I, I I've loved him for such yeah. a long time. But and and that's another example, like what I was critical of Mark Jackson about, is that understanding that you have unique players, and part of what makes the NBA so amazing and so much fun for people like you and I is that you have these people who are. If you want to call them the freaks of the freaks, you know, these are people who have amazing physical gifts and some of them have amazing mental gifts as well. And understanding what makes your specific players special and capitalizing on that for a lot of teams, unless you can, I mean, not everybody can do that the way the Hawks have done it, but that's part of what makes this league so amazing. And I feel like we're getting closer, but not all the way there to teams doing a good job of that. Yeah, I think that's the fair saying this is, you know, I, kind of selling the uh the league a little short in terms of of not having done that in the past i think that there, there's always been sort of pockets of that and at the same time there's been kind of the opposition forces the forces of darkness been you know the cookie cutter wayism kind of um <laughs> this is the only only way we can possibly succeed because you know it was written in a book in 1960 kind of kind of way um and it's it's kind of been a constant tension with it, and I think that you know the the the, the certainly since since Popovich started winning by emulating Mike D'Antoni in certain ways, uh, the forces of, of good and light and and stuff are are winning. 
but that, that's that doesn't it won't necessarily always be the case at some point you know the the pendulum will kind of swing back towards you know negativity and and uh and, and traditionalism because that's kind of how things these things work how can we get that light onto the new orleans sideline <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I f- I'm so worried that Anthony Davis is just going to be underutilized, which is crazy considering he's leading the league in PER and he's a remarkable player. But I, I, he's he's dynamite in a bottle. It seems like there's so much more he can. Well, how, I don't know. I mean, how how much you know he he for for a a big guy who doesn't necessarily have you know he 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 does some things you know off one two three dribbles, but he's he's not a guy. Still, you you kind of you can't throw him the ball. You know, like the Clippers do a little fairly often with with Griffin when he's healthy, they kind of throw him the ball on the left elbow and say, "Go to work." And you know, he's developed kind of that that off the dribble game and that that sort of passing acumen to be able to make plays from that spot. And especially the passing part, if there's one criticism you're going to make of Davis, is he doesn't quite have that yet. He's a, he's a finisher. Now, could they be more creative to get him the ball in better spots to finish and stuff like that, and to you know use him as a use the threat of his finishing to you know open stuff else around him? Absolutely. Like you're not going to hear me defend you know uh, Monty Williams, but Anthony Davis' direct involvement in their offense is you know it's 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 about as high as it's going to get, and just you know that's building true. the rest of it around him is is going to be the 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 key part. And that's that's where they've fallen down more than just Davis himself. That's definitely true. Uh, before we leave, I'm guessing that you're feeling this way. Do you think that the odds-on finals is Spur is not Spurs? Sorry, Warriors Hawks. <laughs> For some, no, um, I think the odds-on finals right now is Warriors uh, um, Cavs. Cavs. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Oh man, that I, I hope we get a Cavs Hawks series. I, that would just be I so just much fun. I think. Sort of, uh, kind of right before the break. I think it was the first game. The, the the game they lost to break their losing streak was uh, the Hawks. I'm talking about when was when they kind of got steamrolled by New Orleans, and they just got you know Tyreek Evans just kind of out athleted them, uh, and it, Evans and Davis just sort of out athleted them, and that's the Pelicans and their one thing. And then you, you know, you 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 change Tyreek Evans and Anthony Davis to LeBron James and Kyrie Irving and. And everything else they bring, and you know the fact that the Cavs have more besides those two than the Pelicans do, and I can really see something very similar happening. Yeah, I, I man, it's gonna be. I'm just so excited for the playoffs. You know, it's gonna be. It's yeah. just gonna be the whole thing is gonna. Even the West, not sorry, not even the West. Even the East is gonna be really intriguing now with the way that the bottom of the East has kind of moved out, especially if the possibility of Paul George. Ah. Uh, uh, we don't have time to talk about this, but I think that's terrible. I think I think yeah. I, I, th- it's I think there's no way that, that he should. I I really don't think he should play this year. Excluding that whole conversation, which we should have soon. Uh, are there any other <laughs> Are there any other thoughts or kind of ideas you want to share with listeners? Or no, not really. I'm just trying to to get everything I need to get done done in time to I'm headed to to Sloan this week, and so I uh, need to get all, all all that stuff done. Um, I've got all some. It, some pieces I got to finish and, and just to, you know, generally get myself ready to go and hopefully find some time to watch some games in the interim. Well, keep up the great work. It's been a pleasure talking with you and I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Seth for taking the time. You can read him at the Nylon Calculus, Beatball Breakdown, Washington Post, Fancy Stats, and Hardwood Paroxysm. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow at Seth Partnow. That's S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W. It was great having him on. I loved 
being able to go through a lot of different topics. He and I had kind of talked a little bit, but I had a lot of his pieces that I wanted to bring on, and so we talked about that and a lot of other topics, and I'm really excited to see how the rest of the playoffs works out. I'm a little bit frustrated with myself that this came out after the Derrick Rose injury, but we recorded it before, so some of the stuff related to Chicago has changed a little bit, but that's my own fault. But thank you so much for listening. As always, your input is much appreciated. You can reach out to me on Twitter, at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com. I read everything, I respond to as much as I can, and I appreciate all the feedback that you give. And thanks again for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves.